0: I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians. Uh, Last Sunday, we had a wonderful time in baptizing uh, a couple that are already, they're here this morning, but Scott and and, uh, I'll get it right, Malia. (laughs) My brain isn't working. I hope that's not pretending anything for this message here, but... My brain's not working too well, but it was a great time, a celebration, and we enjoyed it. And we took a look at uh, Acts chapter 16 and talked a little bit about uh, the Philippian jailer who was baptized in Acts 16. Also, a woman by the name of Lydia was a uh, witness to, and she received Christ and was baptized. These were two famous individuals, and they happened to be in the city of, of Philippi. Uh, And I would like to share with you about Paul as he wrote this prison letter. He's in prison and he's writing to the believers at Philippi and uh, sharing with them because it was a glorious church, a church that was faithful to the Lord. And we can learn a whole lot uh, from the Philippians uh, and Paul's letter to the Philippians about how we are supposed to grow as disciples and uh, testify and witness of our faith to the world around us. So uh, we're going to be looking at this text here, uh, verses 1, 1 through 8. So if you turn with me there, I'll read this out loud. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This um, city, uh, a Roman city, um, was established uh, to do business in Macedonia, in the area around there. And Paul went there for about two or three or four weeks at the most, not very long. And then he went on in his second missionary journey. But it's an exciting uh, city in the sense that the individuals who came to know Christ seemed to understand completely what they needed to do and they served and they ministered and Paul has nothing but praise to give them and he starts off this letter written while he's in prison around 60 AD, AD 60. He writes to a church that will be very interesting but very faithful in their ministry and their love for Christ Jesus. Apparently, they sent Epaphroditus to give Paul some money to help support him while he was in prison. And Paul sits down and takes pen in hand and begins to write this letter to them to share with them his heart, because he's already going to tell us that the Philippian church is close to his heart. And we're going to take a look at that and understand uh, what he's doing here and how that will apply to us as well. So the very first point that I want to make is Paul's greeting. Now, if you and I were to write a letter, we'd probably write, dear so-and-so, I'm just taking this moment or time to write to you a note. We might even write up the top of the date, and we might even write up further above that um, details about to whom the letter was addressed. Well, Paul does this too. And in doing this, he gives us some insight into the nature of the church and really what has taken place between the time of his second missionary journey, where he spent time in Philippi witnessing and testifying and seeing Lydia and her family uh, baptized and then the Philippian jailer and maybe even the whole prison, some in the prison who came to know Christ, And the time that he went on his other missionary journeys all the way up to he was imprisoned in Rome. And to hear Paul recount some of the things that took place and to recognize as we study this this letter what had happened, what had taken place. Um, he, He talked to the church at Corinth and he had some difficult things to tell them because they weren't being a good church. But that's not the case here in Philippi. Paul says this is a church that's close to his heart because he knows they're being faithful and they're serving God. And if we wanted to have any church to be a model of or follow, it wouldn't be very bad to pick Philippi, the church of believers in Philippi, because of what they were doing and Paul's teaching for them. So Paul writes his letter and he starts off by talking about The servants and the saints. He talks about the servants and the saints. He starts his letter off by saying, Paul and Timothy. You know, our letters, we go down to the bottom and we write sincerely or respectfully yours or something and then sign our name. But in those days, they wrote the address or the person writing the letters up the top. So Paul is the missionary and Timothy is his associate And he's uh, with Paul, or Paul's writing on his behalf as well, and Paul all of a sudden calls them servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's self-awareness of his role and his identity, um, he doesn't say, I'm the missionary that showed up and held so many revivals and saw so many hands raised, you know, and that kind of stuff. He's not cackling out about how great things were and wonderful things that he was responsible for. He just says Paul and Timothy, and then he says servants of Christ Jesus. And we shouldn't miss the point of him writing servants, because a better translation is slave. This word is the word for slave. And Paul understands what it means to be a slave. There were slaves in their culture. And he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. You know, servants could decide things that they want to do or not to do or the ways to do them, but slaves were pretty much owned and told what to do by the owner. And Paul comes out and tells them right away that he doesn't belong to anybody else except Jesus Christ. And he is the slave of Jesus Christ. Timothy too, which means that they are directed that they are taught, that they are serving, they are doing what Jesus wants them to do. And it's a pretty important way of identifying yourself instead of Paul saying, oh, I'm from Troas, the guy from Troas that showed up at your place. No, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It shows Paul's humility and it shows Paul's understanding of who he is as a believer. When we come to know Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're actually returning ourselves to God as the owner of our lives. God created us, made us in his image, and mankind decided to be disobedient and turn away. And Paul here is recognizing that as a believer, we give ourselves back to Jesus Christ. So it's no longer our way, but it's God's way. It's no longer us in the driver's seat, it's really Jesus. There's a song that says, um, somebody said, oh, it's a little uh, uh, bumper sticker. It says, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, I don't know if Jesus would want to be my co-pilot because I don't drive so good. I want Jesus to be the pilot. He's the one who needs to direct us and show us what to do. And Paul understands that and right away, he's laying down that principle for the Philippians to understand. He's saying, I am nothing but a slave of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I have my being in him. I have my life as a result of his death and resurrection on the cross. And I really don't matter in this, but it's, it's actually Jesus. He's going to tell us about that too later on but he wants us to understand that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Then he writes to to all the saints in Christ Jesus in verse 1 who are uh, in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And this is Paul talking about the, 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 the servants and all the people there. And he first off says the saints, these are the ones who are set apart. They're not saints in the sense that they're perfect that they can walk around uh, about six inches or actually off the ground and float along with a halo over their head. That's not the meaning of saints. It really means someone set apart, dedicated or consecrated. So the saints who are there are those who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ, who have believed in the Son of God, Jesus, who lived and taught and died on the cross and God raised again on the third day, they follow the way. They follow Jesus Christ. They have given themselves, consecrated themselves to God. And Paul calls them that. They are the consecrated ones. And our English tends to translate it as saints. And through history and time, we made saints out to be something different than what the biblical concept is. It's not a perfect, sinless, wonderful person. It's just a saved believer who understands that the blood of Jesus was was shed for them on the cross and God raised Jesus from the third day to save us despite our sinfulness, despite our self-centeredness, despite how many times we do things wrongly and incorrectly and only for our own benefit and for our own lust and greed and passion instead of doing these things for Jesus Christ. So Paul is being gracious here. He's calling them saints because he knows that they are dedicated. They have given their hearts to the Lord Jesus. And he says, you are saints in Christ Jesus. This is their spiritual location. Saints in Christ Jesus. They're not saints in politics or saints in any other aspect of culture or the world. He's showing them and telling them that their location and the place that they need to be spiritually is in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he says, who are in Philippi. That's their physical location. He's writing to these favorite people there in Philippi because he knows that they're there in that place to do the work of the gospel. That's why he went there. That's why he went and witnessed to, to Lydia. That's why he went to the prison and God gave the great big earthquake and the doors flew open and he witnessed to the jailer and they came to know Christ. They are supposed to be Christian servants Saints dedicated to Jesus Christ where God has placed them. And that's important for us. Sometimes we think that maybe we would be better servants if we go do this or go do that there, but God is calling us to do it here, too. Believers, right here. What do we call ourselves? Kansas City? um, Liberty? (laughs) Whatever we call ourselves. Clay County? We're called to be here as saints to help people come to know Christ. So he calls them saints, and he tells them that they are in Jesus Christ. And then he says they are in to be in Philippi, or they're in Philippi. recognizing their spiritual center in Jesus and their physical location where they are. He also adds the word, including the overseers and deacons. Now, this word overseer probably means pastor. And he makes it plural, so there's more than one pastor, there's pastors. So maybe we shouldn't see this just as the First Baptist Church of Philippi, but maybe like good Baptists, they got one on every street corner. And it's just all the churches and all of the pastors and all of the overseers, the ones who are helping to teach them, The word overseer means guardian or supervisor trying to make sure that they are being taught uh, the, the teachings of Jesus Christ, the tradition and the way to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. I take it to mean pastors, but he also then says to the deacons. And we know the word deacons means servant too. They're the table, the waiters at the table taking care of the individuals who are widows and orphans and sick, and they're the deacons as well. But I think all of this goes to show that in the short amount of time that Paul was there, and then after his prison, imprisonment, maybe a couple of years, this church had grown. This church had become mighty church with all these different servants, saints and overseers and deacons, And they all were to be in Jesus Christ in the city of Philippi. And Paul is recognizing that they have grown. This isn't a letter, by the way, just to uh, Lydia or to the Philippian jailer. We never know the Philippian jailer's name. We don't know it, but it's not just a letter to those two alone. Paul is writing it to them and the result of their testimonies. You gotta understand, that Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the people in Lydia's household that we're told came to know Christ and were baptized and the Philippian jailer and the people in his household and it could even maybe be some of the prisoners that he was keeping there, they became believers and they became witnesses. And you know what? God blessed their witnesses and the church grew. It wasn't just us four and no more. This is a, these are the saints. It, we don't know the number. They're growing. But they're big enough to have need of pastors and deacons. And they're, they're learning about how the church grew in Jerusalem and they're beginning to put together the right kind of policy and organization to do what they need to do. Now, organization for the sake of organization isn't good. And sometimes we hold on to that sacred cow that we've done it this way before. And we've got to always do it because that's the way we've always done it. Well, yeah, but organization was put together to fulfill a need, a purpose. And however the organization is, it wasn't a means in itself. It was a means to an end growing the church, teaching the believers, helping them to become disciples and faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that. Paul made sure that there were people who were there to help them grow and learn. Now, I don't think there was any, you know, church revitalization books or church growth books and which formula to use. They were there just to learn how to be faithful disciples and how to tell people about Jesus. And God blessed them. And Paul sends them that meaning or that hello in his... uh, in his uh, beginning, or what do, you, what do you call this, the uh, identification of who the people are in this letter. Now, Paul tells who's writing the letter. He tells to whom the letter is written, and then he gives what is called a salutation. And normally we write a salutation as just dear so-and-so. But listen to what Paul's salutation is. It's actually taken from the culture, almost like using the word greetings, you all great and wonderful people, but he's using it in a slightly different way to encourage them and to lift them up because the point of all of Paul's letter is to help them grow. He's not really chastising them for not doing the right things. He's actually praising them and throughout this, all this letter is a, is a statement of praise and joy and. And Paul is encouraging them. But listen to what he writes in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this contains two natures that Paul is trying to give us. And then he's giving us two sources. So the two natures are things that we all want we all strive for, we all wish to have, but he's telling us also the source of where these come from. So if we look at this carefully and and kind of uh, unpack it here a little bit, he says grace, that's the first one. This is God's grace. Grace can mean blessing. And that's exactly what the common letters would say, grace to you, meaning bless you, hope everything is well with you. That's what grace means. God's grace means he gives us mercy, he gives us love. He gives us the ability to be out there in the world and successful and not let the world take over us and challenge us and, and help us quit and, and, you know, just be so sad and depressed. God's grace comes as a means of hope and a means of, of love and a means of mercy. That if we hold on to God, God's going to teach us how to navigate this the journey in this world to be successful in the things that matter for time and eternity. And Paul is saying, God's grace needs to be there with you. I am asking for God to bless you, to give you strength. He says, grace to you. And he's addressing the Philippians. Grace to you. And he says, peace. And that's the second thing, grace and peace. Everybody wants grace and peace. Peace here isn't the non-existence of any strife or turmoil, but it's the way in which we can walk through it. Peace means that we know how to make the right decisions, how to go through the temptations and the problems that we face. Peace means we we learn how to live a life that that honors God and trusts in him. His peace that he gives to us in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In Isaiah 9, 6, one of the throne names of the Messiah that's applied to Jesus in the New Testament is the Prince of Peace. He has the right kind of peace. The world claims they want peace, but they will never find peace or understand it completely until they meet the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling them, I want more than anything else for grace and peace to be there with you. But Paul also knows that grace and peace doesn't come from any old source. It doesn't come from humans. It doesn't come from the culture. It doesn't come from gurus and self-help people or celebrities or anyone out there who claims to have an opinion and sometimes argues that their opinion is the only right one. This grace and peace that Paul is encouraging them with, offering to them as his salutation, comes from the two most important sources of all of life. He says, grace and peace from God our Father. God created the world, He created us, he knows how we're put together. He knows how we we tick, how we work, how we we need, what we need, and how we we are designed to survive and work in this world. He made us that way, and He blessed us. He blessed the the uh, creation so that we would be fruitful and multiply. He even gave us the charge to subdue the earth and rule it, and, and be. His servants, his stewards of all that he's created. And and he knows what grace and peace is. In other words, God wrote the instruction book. And we have to go to God to understand what real grace and what peace is, to hold on to him because he gives that to us. And then Paul said the other source is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, he calls this uh, as a source. Jesus is a source because it's in him and in his mercy and his love that you and I, sinful that we are, can be forgiven. And we can hold on to Christ. And it is Christ who, who holds on to us and presents us to the Father. We are part of his family. And the source of real grace and real peace in life doesn't come from getting all the possessions, doesn't come from getting all the fame, doesn't come from, from uh, power and, and abuse. It comes from Jesus who lovingly gave himself, willingly, obediently gave himself on the cross. So, I mean, this is a theological treatise in a one little phrase. Because all of it is Paul's encouragement to the church at Philippi. Well, oh, we say, "Hey, have a great day. Hope you're doing well," and we don't really mean it. I mean, you know, at least we don't mean it for more than a second or two as we see you, and then we get back in our own little world. All too often, we do that, and we're self-centered, and we only can myopic vision. We can only see ourselves. Paul is expanding that to tell the church at Philippi that they can find grace and peace. But the right source to find grace and peace is in God the Father and Jesus Christ. It was God the Father who allowed Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to make it possible for us to be successful in life and know how to make the right decisions and seek to serve God and follow him because he will always lead us in a great and wonderful path. He's going to be talking about that in just a minute. But that's the greeting. The second thing that we want to look at is Paul's joy. Now, Paul's excited for the church. He They sent him money, support, but he's not just excited for that. He's excited because of what took place when he went there. And he witnessed to Lydia there on the Sabbath day by the down by the river where there'd be a place of prayer. And he met Lydia and he told her about Jesus and she received Jesus Christ and her family was baptized. And the Philippian who had a magnificent testimony as the middle of the night this earthquake shows up after Paul and Silas are uh, singing and all these prisoners could have escaped but they didn't and the Philippian came to Paul and said what must I do to be saved and he told him to believe in Jesus Christ he shared the gospel with him shared the gospel with his family and they came and they were baptized and all of a sudden Paul gets to write to them and say, my, that was so wonderful. And look at what's been happening in your life. And so he shares with them his joy in verses uh, three through five. His joy starts out in in, uh, verses three uh, and four and five by talking about three ways that his joy is expressed. Three ways that Paul remembers these joys. So in verse three, he says, I give my thanks to God for every remembrance of you. I think Paul was probably sitting back with Silas and some other guys. He remember when we were singing and God came down and the earthquake happened? Wow, that was really glorious. God did that, and all these people. Paul had pleasant memories. When he witnessed to Lydia, and Luke is writing this early in Acts 16, around 14, verse 14 or so. Lydia comes to them and says, if you consider me a believer, you come into my house. You come and I'll take care of you. And they went there. And they didn't have any worries. They didn't have any needs. They didn't have to go to the local YMCA or some other hotel, Motel 6 or whatever. They, they were given the royal treatment by Lydia because she cared for them because she came to know Christ. And Paul's sitting there saying, wow, God was so great. God was gracious, it's great to have memories of things that God has done for you. But in this case, Paul's remembering of how God moved in their church. And he says, I give thanks, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Every time I think about you, it's a wonderful joy. Now, maybe there were some bumps in the road, Maybe there weren't some extras, you know, like maybe Paul wasn't really a big fan of onions and Lydia made a big onion stew or something. I don't know. There's bumps in the road, but Paul is someone who knows how to exist and be happy in every area and everything. So bumps in the road happen, but still the joy of Christ overrides that. It's much more important than the bumps in the road. The bumps in the road are just the things that get to us. But the Paul's joy is the remembering what God had done. Remembering God's grace, remembering his actions, remembering God's willingness to help them come to know and witness to Christ, for Christ there in Philippi. Because it was God who brought the earthquake and God who took the, jo- the, da- the, the doors of the jail and flew them open. He did that, and Paul's thanking God. He's thanking God for every remembrance of you. These were pleasant memories that he had. Secondly, he said that he was always praying for them with joy, and we're going to be looking at a couple of prayers of Paul later. But he says, always praying uh, for, with joy for you. So Paul's joy is also a way of praying for them that he had the opportunity to pray for them. Now, they weren't in trouble. They weren't having all kinds of problems. But Paul prayed for them. Prayer, you see, is not just praying for problems. Like somebody's got a bad big toe and got to go see the doctor. Prayer is praying for the joy of knowing that they know Christ. That they're walking faithfully in Christ. Praying for joy that God gave them to you as a friend or as a a fellow believer or even as a child. Praying with joy is thanking God for blessing your life with them, experiencing them in whatever way they may be. Joy in the prayer here is where he's praying with joy for all of you in every prayer. He prays with joy for them. Maybe we should pray for joy with each other and just thank God for each other and and do that. But then the the third, the the last part of this um, prayer, this this joy in verse 5, he he just says, this is really great what we have here. He says, "I, I pray, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, you've got to understand what Paul's saying here because this is kind of a, a neat thing. It's Paul writing to the Philippians, and they have the inside story. We don't. And Paul is reminding them of this. And so we have to stop and think about it a little bit to understand what he means. It's important to understand that Paul is recognizing when the very first day happened, that they spoke to Lydia, and then they were thrown into prison, and God did that mighty thing, the earthquake, and they came out, and they began to testify and witness, and the Philippians became, Philippian jailer became a Christian. That's the first day. And he's saying there, I remember that from the first day until now. Now, they gave him a gift. They took up an offering. They sent him money because in jail over there in Rome, as a prisoner for the gospel, Paul didn't have any way to make any money. And he's suffering. And so they take up an offering and they send it to him. See, they know Paul needs their help, but they know that Paul is a missionary and they're going to help Paul be a missionary. We're going to hear about that in just a minute. But he says from the first day, when we witnessed and you believed till now, you have done what? You have been partners with us in the gospel. Now, the King James uh, uses the word um, fellowship because the word in the in, uh, Greek actually is the word fellowship. So, we like fellowship because we like a potluck suppers and those kinds of things, but that's not what Paul means here. He means that when you become a Christian, you partake together with other Christians in the ministry. And Paul is thanking God with joy that the Philippians didn't just decide to do nothing, they went to proclaim the gospel to the people around them, and they went to send money to help Paul in prison continue to be faithful. So Paul is saying, I am so excited that you are partnering with me in the gospel. From the first day until now, I remember that your partnership has been there. The willingness to help other people come to know Christ. The servant heart to go out and share the gospel the ability to help them be discipled, the caring going on by opening the doors of our church and our heart to disciple people in Christ. That's what Paul is saying is the fellowship, the partnership that the Philippians are doing with him from the first time they came to know Christ until their gift, they've been in a partnership with Paul. And he is happy. He is joyous because not only the pleasant memories and not only because of his prayer ministry as he prays for them in every prayer, but because they have been partners with him in the gospel. And that's what's so exciting that they, Paul knows that believers, when they're serving together, are all partakers of the gospel ministry. People in our church, people outside of our church, if they name the name of Christ and they help people come to know Christ, we are partakers in fellowship with each other as believers. And Paul is doing this. And then in um, verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about his encouragement. And he wants to encourage them in all of this so that they will come to know uh, what God wants them to do and how Paul can help them grow. And some of the things that they stand upon, and Paul's just trying to remind them of that, so they will be encouraged. So verses um, 6 through 8, these two verses, give us a sense of the encouragement of Paul. This is his, his understanding of who they are, what they're doing, and what he knows to be right to do, and to encourage them to do it. So in the first case he talks about his confidence uh, in their spiritual growth in the work that God is doing. So if we look in verse 6, we read this. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what is he saying here? Well, this is the work that God started when... Paul became a missionary. When he went to serve them, God called Paul to start the work. What's the work? Well, the work is the gospel. Telling people about the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel. What's the work? The work is baptizing people after they've testified of their faith in Jesus Christ. Organizing them together as a body of believers, a church. The work is helping that church to learn and to grow and to be discipled so that they could go on and tell others and multiply and be fruitful that God might have people come to him and come to know him. And Paul said the work was started not by he himself, but by God. I think that pronoun refers to God. I am sure of this, that God who started a good work in you has the ability to carry it on. This is a continuation until the time that God calls us home. So God is carrying this on until it's finished. And the finish is is to be found until the day of Christ Jesus. What does he mean by the day of Christ Jesus? He means when Jesus comes again to call us home. And he knows that God has the ability, the power to continue doing that. God started this good work in you and he can carry it on all the way until he sends Jesus in the second coming to get us. Now, some of us may lay down our old, our old bodies in the dirt before he comes. Some may be alive when he comes. We don't know when it would be. But God will, Jesus will come and the dead will rise and those who are alive will rise and meet him in the air. And the scriptures tell us it will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And God is powerful enough. He says, I am sure of this. I am positive of this. What God starts his work in you. He has the staying power to continue it until he comes back to finish it off. And that is the hope of the Christian. We may struggle with sin. We may struggle with temptation, but God started the work in us when we received Christ as our Lord and Savior. He's powerful to help us deal with those things, to avoid temptation, to be forgiven of our sins, and to carry on that good work until we go to meet him. Either we die and we go to meet him or we called to be in the air in the second coming of Jesus Christ. However you want to say it, until God ends it, he's able to do it. And he can carry us through. So he's trying to encourage them that this is going to give you confidence. You know why? Because God doesn't take a nap. God doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't leave and put somebody else in charge. He's a 24-hour seven day a week, what, 365 days a year, and that includes leap year. He does it all, always. And he's there to take care of us. That's encouragement. Don't you want to hear that encouragement? That that gives me hope. It's not because of me. If you leave it to me, I mess up things all the time, royally. I mess, I'm pretty good. But I don't have to worry about it. I can hold on to Jesus and I trust him and follow him and he does it right. It's not bad work, it's good work. God always does good work. You ever known him to do bad work? Nope, he doesn't do bad work. Whatever he does is glorious and perfect and right. And he started this work in us and he will carry it on. That's what Paul's telling the church at Philippi. So hang on there, hold on and have hope. The second, verse seven tells us about his particular um, uh, perception of them and he himself, because he says this in verse seven, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. Now this word heart actually means the guts because in their culture, you felt your emotions right here in the guts, not in your heart. The heart was where you thought that was your mind. They didn't have a word for mind, but they have a word for for guts, which means your feelings. And Paul says, I have you in my my guts. I have you right here in my emotions. I know it's okay, it's right for me to think this way because I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. This This is his understanding of having you with me all the time thinking about how you can grow and how God can bless you. It's okay for me to understand this because I have you in my heart. He says, secondly, you are all partners with me, uh, partners with me in grace. What he means by this is that he is saying that they are cooperating with him. In other words, this word partners is also a byproduct of the word koinonia, fellowship. Sometimes we've heard that word koinonia. And we said, Paul said already, you're partners with me. He says, I can think this, you're in my heart and you're a partner with me. And I want to encourage you that God is going to do this because you know what? By your love for me, by your care for me and giving this gift and thinking about me, you're being a partner with me. We have so many missionaries that we support through the uh, Annie Armstrong offering and Home Missionaries and Lottie Moon. And the Southern Baptist Convention has all these missionaries that are going out. And when we pray for them, when we help them, we partner with them. And Paul is thanking them for that. He says, you are all partners with me in grace, in God, giving God's hope, in giving God's mercy, both in my imprisonment. Now, that means he's in jail and they're partner with him, partnering with him there. They're not in jail, but they're helping him to survive the jail. And then he says, in the defense, meaning this word is the word, we have the word called apologetics. I don't know if you've heard of that, Christian apologetics. He uses this word apologetics because he's defending the gospel. Where? In Rome, in prison. Why is he doing this? Because he stood up for his faith and he was arrested. And he was carried off because he appealed to Caesar. And he's getting a chance to tell the Caesars, the Roman government, about the truth of the gospel. And by them praying for him, by them giving him some help, they are partnering with him. Yes, in, in his imprisonment, they're not putting him up in a lavish lifestyle, buying one super jet as opposed to another one or whatever. He's he's being taken care of, barely. But they're partnering with him and they're giving their hearts to him and they're, he's defending the gospel And he's also confirming the gospel. This word confirming is how the gospel is shown to be validated, to give the evidence to show that the gospel is true, because of what God is doing for Paul in prison, and the testimony, we, we, we read it sometimes, it may be some even of Caesar's household, had become believers through Paul's testimony. But the gospel is going out and it's being validated, not only in Rome, but in Philippi, because they're partnering to help tell other people where they live. And people are coming to know Christ. And God's grace is is being given to them. This is what he's trying to say here. Then in verse 8, for God is my witness, How I deeply, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, that word means the guts, (laughs) the emotions, the love that I have given for me, to me from Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting for Paul to say that because Paul at one time had gotten licensed to go out and hunt down Christians and bring them to the authorities in Jerusalem. Paul was a zealot in doing that. In fact, he was the responsible one who got Stephen arrested. And he stood by and held all the the coats and clothes while the people stoned Stephen to death. You read this in the the book of, of Acts in the beginning in the great testimony that Stephen gives about Jesus Christ. Paul is understanding and loving them where he hated Christians before and now God changed his heart and he met Christ on the road to Damascus and now he loves these people. So he's going to write him a tremendous letter. So much in this letter is super. He's going to pray for them. He's going to teach them. But Paul has praise for them because they were being faithful and they were being partners. And they were growing the church. I would ask us to consider how we could apply this as well. We're not there in Philippi, but we are in Kansas City. You know, we are few, but but God has gifted us in many, many, many ways. And God's work is going to be done, and he's going to be able to satisfy it and continue it until the end time. God's capable of doing that. And we can hold on to the grace and peace that Christ Jesus gives. And we can share that with others and bring them to hear the gospel. Bring them to study the Bible. Bring them to hear about our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So that they too can have grace and peace. The kind of grace and peace that doesn't come which is fake and 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 uh, just an imitation of God's grace and peace. That's all the world can give us, fake peace and fake grace. But until they come to know the real and true grace and peace that comes from Jesus Christ. That's Paul's desire for the Philippians, and I would argue that that would be God's desire for us, is to learn how to hold on to God like Paul has done in encouraging the Philippians. We take that encouragement and we continue to serve that God might find our church a glorious and wonderful church as well. We're going to have the musicians come forward and begin to lead us in our our last song. And we encourage you, if uh, God is speaking to you, the song, How Firm a Foundation, that maybe you need to come and know Christ Jesus if you've never asked him into your heart to find out what it means to know him and to receive this grace and peace that he gives. Or perhaps you know him, but you're looking forward to serving him and you need to find a place to serve him and either through the waters of baptism or how we receive other church members, you might feel led to come and join with us, then do it. Don't delay. Come and join us if God is calling you to do it so that together we can become like the Philippians and testify of our faith to this community around us. But as we stand and sing, you come as the Lord leads you. Let's stand and sing.